Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Now You Know Akron podcast. Brought to you by the journalists of BeaconJournal.com. Each week, they will share their expertise on Akron and Summit County. Now, here's your host, Craig Webb. Thanks for joining us for the Now You Know Akron podcast. I'm your host, Craig Webb. In this podcast, we'll be having discussion about police tactics and the oversight of internal investigations when there are use of force complaints involving citizens in the city of Akron. We'll hear from Beacon Journal reporters covering this issue, along with two Akron City Council members and the president of the police union in the city. But first, here's three things you should know from recent headlines from BeaconJournal.com. Beacon Journal consumer reporter Betty Lynn Fisher took a look at a new report from CreditCards.com that found that Generation Z, or those ages 18 to 24, were nearly five times as likely as the adults ages 41 and older to say they got some financial counsel from social media. 22% of Generation Z said they got no financial advice at all. It seems 25% of adults turned to financial websites for advice, and the others turned to social media and friends. Our experts say not all advice on social media is bad, but it also can be risky, and it shouldn't be your sole source of financial advice. The Akron Public School Board believes it's found its next superintendent. It has offered the district's top job to Christine Fowler-Mack. She's not a stranger from Akron. In fact, she grew up here. He's a graduate of East High School where she played basketball and was on the track team. She is the daughter of former Akron School Board President Reverend Ronald Fowler. She's currently a top administrator in the Cleveland Public Schools, and she actually has some brief experience running a district. She served as the interim superintendent for the Cleveland Heights University Heights School District for about eight months. She's a mom of school-age kids, and her husband is a former officer who just recently retired from the Akron Police Department. Our final story today is about one of the latest installments in our Change Agent series, which takes a look at folks making a difference in the community. This particular story is about Gino Tony, who turned to boxing to get through some pretty tough times that included a stint in jail. Hoping to make a difference in the lives of Akron's youth, Tony has opened a boxing gym where kids can learn the sport and hopefully a few life lessons along the way. In this segment, we're joined by Beacon Journal reporter Doug Livingston, who covers City Hall and Akron City Council President Margot Somerville and Ward 8 Councilman Seamus Malik. Uh, the questions of police reform and oversight of investigation when there are concerns over use of force have been ongoing in the city since the death of George Floyd last year and the recent February arrest of an Akron man where snow was shoved in his face during arrest by one of the officers. We should note that that officer has since uh, resigned. So welcome, everyone. Margo, let's, let's start with you. Maybe you can give us just kind of a, you know, an update where we are in terms of this whole discussion of, of police reform that really kind of began 
really began many years ago, but but kind of, you know, were brought back to the forefront after the arrest of George Floyd and, and some of the protests downtown and concerns raised and, and this recent this most recent incident in, in the city. Absolutely. City Council, you know, once the tragic death of George Floyd happened, began to see protesting happening in our city. Um, and we we heard our residents loud and clear. You know, they wanted to have discussion about police reform. And so that we knew the importance of having these these discussions. And so that's why we created um, our special committee, Reimagining Public Safety, an opportunity for Akron City Council to come together to collectively work on one topic, one issue, which we've never done before. So we made history in even doing this. But public safety, because it doesn't matter what district you represent, public safety is a concern for everybody across the city. And so through this process, we wanted to take an opportunity to do a deep dive and look at our public safety in Akron, look at the police department and look at what is it that we do well in Akron? How can we celebrate those things? How can we better market those things? But how can we look at things that we need to improve upon? What are some of the challenges uh, within our police force and how can we be more effective? How can we be more efficient and how can we be more intentional to rebuild public trust? And so through this process, We've been moving in this direction and having these conversations and we brought forth recommendations so that we can turn these recommendations into actual legislation. And so that's where we are right now. Seamus, your 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 thoughts on I know you've been kind of leading some of this. Um, What's your what's your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I I think that uh, President Somerville is is right, that we wanted to take a deep dive. And I, I really credit her with leading this and and you know we broke up into four different working groups right so accountability uh and transparency which i was uh one of the co-chairs of uh we had technology we had prevention and a what should we be doing to prevent crime and uh, then we have personnel and culture right which is more kind of recruitment and then training um and so you know as you all know we had a report of recommendations that we released in January. And that was really the result of working with the police department to do a deep dive in each of those areas. Right? I think we had 21 meetings amongst those four working groups. But, you know, specifically with regard to accountability, since that was the piece that I spent the most on, I think one of the things we see, and you see this across the nation, is that public safety really requires uh, public trust. And I just heard the attorney general say that on uh, CNN uh, uh, just now, but that's really kind of the, the guiding uh, light that, that we've looked at when it comes to accountability, because, you know, you cannot have a public safety system unless everyone feels respected by it. Everyone feels like it is there for them. And especially when, you know, we're talking about the black community, because there is a trust gap and that's because of historic injustices but it's also because of, of present injustices that we see all, all around the country and that we're not immune to here in Akron. I think it's really important that, you know, we can't pretend that what happened in Minneapolis can't happen in Akron, right? We, we don't have some kind of special immunity. That's not to say that, you know, something to the level of what happened to George Floyd has happened here, but that's just to say that we shouldn't pretend like we're not in need of improvement, like everything is fine. So, you know, I'll I'll just kind of go down the line of three of the things that our group focused on. But we obviously the the primary we have internal accountability, 
but we need external accountability. And so that's been the role of the police auditor, right? But as, as we all know, the police auditor has not had the staffing access and independence in his role to properly do that job, right? And so that's where our recommendations really are about staffing access and accountability. And, you know, I, we can go more into depth, but there are specific things that we can do and are in the middle of doing to uh, fix each of those elements. And I think it's interesting, kind of circling back a little bit, and I, and I you know, what, what struck me hearing both of you speak is, you know, the word safety came up, the, the word trust came up, and the word accountability. And I, I, I guess my, my question to both of you, and, and can all three of those exist? And I, and I, I guess I, I ask that in the sense of the question, you know, safety is people want to be safe in their homes, right? People want to want to trust that the police will arrive on time, right? We want them to be accountable, you know, be accountable. But I, I, I guess my question is, safety kind of has a different perspective. You know, where where's a police officer safety play in this? I mean, how do you how do you reconcile? We want our police officer to be safe at the same time. And, and I, I, I guess my my question is. How do we ensure the safety of officers, ensure the safety of citizens, and also ensure the safety of someone who's being arrested, right? Because when you call 911, it's probably the worst moment of your life, right? You're, you're, you're asking for help, and, and something has gone terribly wrong. So, so can all three of those coexist? I think that – I think they can, right? And I think that they, they have to. But it, it, no one's pretending like these are simple questions, right? These are very difficult questions. You know, when we get to the point of, uh, you know, an instance of gun violence or the police having to arrest someone, something has already gone terribly wrong. And so, you know, in the first instance, we need to talk about how we make investments in education and housing, in jobs, you know, in, you know, in training so that we're not getting to the point of having, you know, the, the things that the causes of this violence, right? But when we when we get to that violence, right, we obviously need police to be able to respond. They play an important role, right? And we want our officers to be safe. But there are things that we can do. There are things that we have done to stay ahead of the curve. CIT training has been something that really, you know, Akron was at the forefront of 20 years ago and really helped us build a foundation with our mental health agencies that uh, really allowed for, you know, police to engage with folks who are experiencing mental crisis in a way that is safe for both. But there are things that we are not necessarily ahead of the ball on, right? And so when we're talking about the fact that, you know, true community policing allows for officers to walk the beat uh, for a certain portion of, you know, their, their day, and really form meaningful relationships and get at some of these neighborhood problems before they spill over into big things. And when a instance of gun violence happens, there's a level of trust that someone feels comfortable going to an officer and saying, hey, you know, we think it was that person over there, right? And, 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 but we don't have that here in Akron, uh, because we have such a heavy call volume. And so we can do what other communities have done and look at, can we decrease some of that call volume, right? Can we say, you know, some of these non-emergency calls can be handled by a team of social workers or by a team of mental health responders, right? So there are absolutely things we can do, but I think some of it is policy and some of it, frankly, is culture. Uh, so, you know, that would sort of be my response. That's perfect. And I think Shamas uh, explained that very well. But I think one thing that we have to do as well is we have to be proactive. 
we have to be proactive. I think that is so important. You know, oftentimes, you know, we want to react when situations happen, but we really need to be intentional about building, you know, this whole community policing. I mean, that is essential. Hey, listen, it's about relationships. You know, it's amazing. You know, I think I'm still surprised by the fact that if a police officer grew up on the west side of Akron and wants to police the west side of Akron, he can't do that. And that doesn't make sense to me. It makes sense for this officer to go to a neighborhood that he grew up in and he knows Mr. Jones and Mrs. Jones and everybody around the block. He shows up on the scene and you know, he can diffuse a situation, you know, like that just because he has relationships and he knows people. We have to be proactive. We've got to be intentional about making sure our police force looks like the community in which it serves. Diversity is an issue. The fact that we have only a few African-American police officers working midnights is a problem. In the African-American community, you know, things happen at midnight and police officers show up. And they don't look like anybody in the community. That's a problem. We've got to be proactive and intentional about addressing these issues. Doug, you, you, you cover the city of Akron and its citizens. What's your, what's your sense of, of what the citizens want? It's interesting to see how Akron responded and, and how other cities responded. I think Akron avoided a lot of the unrest that we saw across the nation because of the posturing of the police here and, and how responsive its elected leaders were in meeting the demands of the public that was um, rightfully um, disturbed by what happened in, Min- in Minneapolis. I'm wondering about the pace of reform in Akron and, and how it's been deliberately, deliberatively kind of slowed so that people could digest what was happening, understand what processes and systems are in place today, and then build on um, the successes and celebrate what's working and, and, and move forward towards a better, better sense and better form of policing. And I know from the reimagining public safety effort that was a month-long process, I think Shamus mentioned 21 meetings. Out of that came eight recommendations in January. And, and this is where I'm wondering about the pace of reform. When When is it appropriate to legislate these things? A couple of the recommendations in particular, one, giving the codifying the authority of the police auditor so that he can point to the city and charter and say, no, these, this is what I'm allowed to do by city law. I'm allowed access to records. I'm allowed timely notification of issues. The other one is, you know, lifting that age eligibility cap at 40 years. So we're getting ready to hire 50 more police officers in the next year. Um, none of them can be older than 40 years old. And I think one of the recommendations was that that may limit the, the pull of candidates. And correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so those are a couple recommendations that were suggested in January that may have had an impact on, on situations, whether it was Officer John Tenure's use of force and whether the auditor should have been notified of that or preparing to bring on a new uh, class of cadets. So where do you strike the right sense of urgency in legislating what you've already uh, identified as, as issues that need addressed? I think that's good, Doug. I'll let you know that council has been working tirelessly, again, uh, particularly focusing on police auditor first. And Shamus really spoke to some of those issues and some of those concerns. Uh, we moved really quickly when it was budget time to at least make sure that we had in the budget, you know, 40 hours for Phil, which he definitely needs to do the job, and also a paid administrative assistant. He was the only person in the office trying to do the work. And so we at least made sure that those things were in place as we continue to create legislation so that we can 
reimagine the position? Can we imagine that we've had a police auditor all this time and there has been no job description on file? It's amazing, right? And so now we are trying to really think about and recreate what this position should look like and how we can get the police auditor the access, the power, and the authority to do the job. Who should the police auditor report to? These are all things that we are looking at. And Shamas, you can uh, chime in here as well. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think that it is difficult to strike a balance because, you know, when we look at other cities, it's clear that, you know, you have to kind of build on what you have and really, you know, look at what you have, figure out the problems and then move to resolve them. And and that was the goal of reimagining public safety was to come up with tangible things. But, you know, we also have to be mindful that there's a process. And so, you know, the mayor's task force has a criminal justice subcommittee that is also working on these issues. We want to make sure that those folks have the opportunity to weigh in. And we've had a lot of collaboration, a lot of discussion that's ongoing, especially around the police auditor. But I think, you know, the urgency, I think, for 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 us, for all of us on council, for the administration, I think the urgency is real when you see, you know, the incident that happened uh, with with Officer Turnier, when you see, obviously, uh, the, the continuing killings that we're seeing around the country, there is a huge amount of urgency. And so I think it's clear in, in most cities in the country, you know, they have some form of accountability mechanism, uh, whether it's an auditor or, you know, uh, uh, you know, inspector general or what have you. But they all have codified in the city law what they can and can't access. Right. And that's that's so critical. And so that's hopefully something that we can do within the next you know month or two. It's not terribly complicated in terms of, you know, the legislative language. Right. Uh, but and the legislative language, something we've talked about with the mayor's task force. It's something city council's talked about. What's left is to like figure out how the implementation will work. But it's clear what he needs. Right. He needs to be able to access the IA pro blue team early intervention system, right? Because when someone comes to him with several civilian complaints about a particular officer, he can look and see, wow, you know, that that correlates with something we're seeing in the intervention system. And then he can talk to someone in the police department about it if he has a concern, right? The same thing with body camera footage, right? I mean, the fact that, you know, the, the city police auditor saw the body camera footage of this incident uh, with Mr. Hicks at the same time that you and I did is, 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 it's just not where we need to be. And so I think it's obvious he needs to see body camera footage, you know, when he requests it and there needs to be a designated process, right? It needs to be reviewed for any uh, leads information or, or other information that's prohibited by law. But other than that, he needs to see it as soon as he requests it. So to me, that's very clear. But then I think we move into other things like, uh, civilian review board, right? I, we talked about staffing. As President Somerville said, we moved quickly to make sure that the staffing was there, right? For the first time in a decade, he's full-time and has a full-time administrative assistant. Um, but, you know, access is the second piece. But then we go to independence. And I think that, you know, Phil has operated in an independent way. But it's important for the community to see that it's independent, right? And so when you look at other communities, the auditor or whatever oversight function needs to be as far from politics as possible. And so they're not, they shouldn't report to city council. They shouldn't report to a city administration. They should report to a board of civilians. And so again, those have to be discussions, especially 
in in consultation with the community leaders who are working with this on the mayor's task force. But, you know, that's something that would likely require a charter change and should go on the ballot. So there are things kind of in the pipeline, but I can tell you the urgency on, on these are things that we're talking about every day and we're trying to move forward. Absolutely. I mean, we see particularly in the African-American community, young people don't want to be police officers. And so we really have to change that and be intentional about that. And so the next thing that you will see and that we are working on is really a program geared just around that. And it is a, a pathway to policing, creating that pipeline, right? where we're mentoring young people and, and really introducing them to the field of public safety and not just introducing them, but actually giving them paid internships, right? Where they have opportunities to get some experience and get some mentorship and us really keeping our hands on them. We know that a young person at the age of 18 could get into some trouble, get something on their record, and they can never become a police officer because of that one mistake. And so we are hoping that with this pathway to policing program that we will uh, roll out here soon is a way to to solve that and just make sure that our police force is more representative of our community. Sure, and I know that that was one of the recommendations that came out of the, the public, yep. measuring public safety is to create this pathway that uh, gets over some of the barriers that especially younger, diverse candidates have experienced. Um, I'm wondering about council's reaction to how the police department handled, since it's so fresh in our minds, the, the use of force incident involving Officer Tenier. And, and I guess we should be clear that, you know, in a charter government like Akron, the mayor is given a lot of flexibility and latitude to implement and administer laws. But it's ultimately city council that sets up those laws that, that provide, you know, the guardrails by which the administrators can operate. So what was your response? What was your reaction? How do you feel about how and when the public was made aware of of the the body cam footage or even the incident itself and then also how the how the department communicated that and handled its investigation i was really troubled by the incident um but also by the reaction and so you know the incident here we have someone who they're they're they've been taken to the ground uh, they I, apparently are handcuffed, right? Uh, the danger seems to be minimal at that point. There's several officers around. And, and granted, very difficult situation, right? It seems like almost all of the officers did did a good job with a difficult situation. So I want to, you know, bracket that. But you have an officer who's, you know, blocking someone's airway with snow. And, you know, in, in what seems to be a very angry kind of response and in a way that, you know, clearly obstructed the guy's breathing, right? And and could potentially create harm. And so seems to be a pretty clear instance of excessive force. And that first should should concern us because, you know, what steps can we take to make sure that this can't happen going forward, right? But then we have our police union say that they feel it was appropriate, that they feel it was within policy. That really and and then cite to an opinion from a retired officer who spent time training officers on use of force and on policy. And so that really gets to me because it says at least some folks see that as acceptable behavior. And that is not acceptable behavior. Right. And I don't believe the community sees that as acceptable behavior. And so we have a real problem there because that is not a law or policy problem. That is a culture problem. And and that is a that is a challenge that we are all going to have to grapple with that the police, the new police chief is going to have to grapple with. 
um, that, you know, the, the department and the union are going to have to grapple with because that is just a fundamental difference, I think, in how I and I think, you know, many others see how policing should work, right? That those these are the kind of incidents that undermine community trust. And aside from aside from the the details of the incident and what what happened, what the officer did, the handling of the incident, the investigation and and the press conference. What are your impressions of how the police department uh, broadcast broadcasted this to the public and, and tried to tried to handle any criticism that was mounting um, from uh, Mr. Hicks's attorney or from the public wanting to know a little bit more. Um, what was your response to how the police department responded? I mean, I think that our police department did a good job coming out uh, very early, you know, with the, with the uh, press conference saying, Hey, listen, you know, this situation happened. We're not trying to hide it. Uh, the, the situation was wrong. It was inappropriate. And we're going to deal with this officer. So I was actually really, really felt good that at least we have been uh, make these steps to at least saying we're calling officers out. I think we did the right thing by coming out early, holding the press conference and saying that we were going to hold, you know, this officer accountable. So I have to give the police department that much credit. I think that one of the things that it also underscored to me was going back to the auditor that, you know, a, a use of force investigation, a deadly force investigation, they're, they're always going to be a, a confidential thing, right? It's always going to happen in secret, right? But that's why it's so important that you have the auditor aware and in the room and able to ask the questions that he wants to ask and able to look at the documents that he wants to look at because that person can help serve as the community advocate when the community can't be in the room because the process is sensitive, right? And, you know, on the other aspect, I think, you know, we should obviously release uh, body camera footage as quickly as we can. And, you know, I, I, you know, I was very troubled. I know President Summer was troubled when we first heard the allegation that there was a knee on the neck. And thankfully, you know, the body cam footage seems to have addressed that that was not the case. And I think that's important. But, you know, we see what happened, sadly, um, in Columbus uh, last night, the killing of Makia Bryant. And even last night, within a couple of hours, the city of Columbus released that body camera footage. And so I think that hopefully that is where we're moving towards, right, with the legislation that the council is going to have to pass, that, you know, we can at least give folks uh, uh, the body camera footage and, and some context and with, you know, within a couple of days and say, hey, this was an incident that happened. We're taking this seriously. The investigation is going to proceed. But, you know, there is an auditor in the room. And also here is what, you know, here's what we can show you. That's it. That's it. And moving towards, you know, not just releasing body cam footage that favors the police. Right. So definitely that charter amendment, extremely important. And we're looking forward to continue the work on the, the body cam release legislation coming out in June. Well, it should be noted, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm a First Amendment kind of guy, uh, and, and it, it seems to me that the, the transparency is, is perhaps, you know, a, a word that we should discuss a little bit, and, and maybe, you know, timeliness and transparency, that, that perhaps, you know, there were 11 videos from what it appears that, that there was not a, a knee of the neck. There were some other tactics that have come to question, obviously an officer resigned, but I think, Seamus, you said it. A lot of things went right that night and, and, you know, a few things went wrong. But maybe if if we had been more speedy in releasing those body cams, like in Columbus, I think their legislation, their city, and Doug, you correct me if I'm wrong, that they have to release within 
24 hours, 24 hours after the incident, that, that maybe this might be a, a step for that, the, that at least the citizens would have a sense that there's transparency and, and accountability. Sure. And I, I think what we've heard from residents is the inconsistency in which the policy has been applied in Akron and elsewhere. Um, we've seen videos released um, outside of policy, which says they should not be released. Um, they've been shown to members of the media, but not released to the public. Um, so I think um, I think the public would benefit from just understanding what and when can really be released. And, and that, I think, Doug, is where, again, having a law that spells out what has to happen, to your point about guardrails, is just so important, right? Because a, a, a policy can be changed depending on a specific incident. You know, it can be applied differently. But a law says this has to be done. You know, and that's the same thing with the auditor. And I think those are the things that give the community a little bit more understanding of the process, right? When when the process plays out the same way each time, at least there is some understanding that is a sense of fairness. And I think that that's hopefully what we're getting to with with both of those pieces that we're going to be working on. Well, thank you, Doug, Margo, and Seamus for joining us today. And hopefully we can reconvene soon and discuss this topic further. In this segment, we're joined by Beacon Journal reporter Sean McDonald, who covers police and breaking news, and Clay Cozart, president of the Fraternal Order of Police of Akron Lodge 7. I should note that Clay is assigned to the Detective Bureau when he's um, not doing his duties as the FOP uh, president uh, within the police department. And I'm told in a previous life, he uh, once worked in radio. The city of Akron is in the midst of not only a search for a new police chief, but also a review of just how complaints of alleged inappropriate use of force by police officers are investigated and handled. So welcome, everyone. Thank you. Clay, let's, let's start with you. And I, and I guess, you know, just to start out, what is uh, the morale among officers in the department right now? Well, it's, it's taken a hit, to be honest with you, um, especially among some of the younger officers. We do have a young department, and uh, it has uh, definitely taken a hit. I was surprised to find out uh, some of the younger members are seeking employment uh, elsewhere and, and putting out feelers and resumes to, to other um, departments. So the issues that we're talking about today is, is use of force. And, and you know, we, we recently had a, a, a case at Akron. But do you, you really think an officer going to another department that, I mean, aren't there issues that are nationally that, that kind of you, you can't necessarily go to another department to, to escape the, you know, the questions of use of force? Well, your larger cities are obviously because they have a higher crime rate are, are going to be a little more problem, pro- problematic than maybe some of your uh, smaller suburban departments that actually pay a lot better than your city departments. And, and there's less tension and uh, those are some of the reasons that they are, are considering that. So most of the problems that you see are in larger cities uh, and medium-sized cities like like Akron. What has been the attitude for a lot of new officers coming in? I mean, I know talking to cadets myself, a lot of them seem to come in knowing that they have attitudes sometimes stacked against them. What has been your experience uh, talking to new officers who are still choosing to go into police work at this time? 
Well, our training bureau uh, does a very good job with putting everything in perspective. And one of the things that I try to make clear to these new recruits and even to our younger officers, and I even have to remind some of our older officers, are, you know, the noisy people are the ones that get the media attention. But there's been studies where, you know, 80% plus of the citizens support their police. I remember as a young officer, I was put on a a special detail where, where we were doing surveys of neighborhoods that had high crimes. And I remember working some of those neighborhoods as a young police officer, first time seeing crime as it happens, uh, and thinking, wow, these, this is a really bad neighborhood. This is so much crime. Uh, drug dealers on the on the corners, selling right out in in the open. But when you go there during the day and you knock on these doors and you meet these citizens, and you and, and you and you and you give these surveys, they want police presence, and they appreciate it. Unfortunately, in some of these neighborhoods, when the sun goes down, they pull their blinds down. And they go to bed, and they don't want to know what's going on outside. There was so much, oh, thank you so much for stopping by and talking. Those people don't get hurt. Those people aren't calling radio stations or making comment in the paper. It's only those that have criticisms or beefs with the police that are uh, that are interviewed, to be quite honest. So I try to remind the officers of that, that, the vast majority of the citizens of Akron support them and what they do. Can we improve on things? Absolutely. There's not a man or woman on this police department that will tell you that they personally can't improve themselves in their personal lives and their professional lives. I want you to think back to when you first became a police officer. And, and now, I mean, I, 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 it's interesting that we're, you know, we, we have this discussion. I mean, shouldn't an officer always feel like they're always on camera? I mean, you're wearing body cams. I mean, a lot of houses now have ring doorbells. I mean, I, you can probably attest to this, that many times when officer rolls on a scene, someone has a cell phone out. You are constantly watched, right? Right. And, again, the younger officers get that from day one because that's what they grew up in. When I first started, there were no cell phones. I thought I was never going to have to get a cell phone. I, I would say, I, I don't need this cell phone. Now I can't live without it. So, But this is the... This is the generation that grew up with that. From a kid, they're being uh, videoed when they take their first steps, when they have their first birthday. So the younger officers get it. And we have some really great young officers on this department that are doing some great things. And they know they are being watched. And they're not playing to the cameras because, quite frankly, they've been on camera all their life. So they're just doing what they would normally do. And they're trying to protect the citizens, do what they can do to help. Most people that take this job, they want to help others. And um, and we have some very good young officers who are doing that. When I was thinking about this podcast this morning, I was reminded of a high school teacher I talked to. And he was one of the only high school teachers that I, I knew of who kind of taught about policing in class. And I wonder, do you think the average citizen knows enough about policing. I mean, obviously they're not going to be experts the way police will, but I, you know, I think back to my own education and there's a lot about police and what they do that I had no idea before I I got this job. 
or this kind of job, you know, in other papers. Do you think that as the entire country is now in this reform conversation that we should be teaching more about the police side of things in high school, grade school? I mean, what are your thoughts on on how we teach about what police do in schools and things like that? Well, that's a good point, and uh, I'll expand that to not only everyday citizens, but I'll expand it to politicians. I will expand it to proclaimed community leaders. Everyone needs to be educated. The police needs need more training, but our citizens, our politicians, and our, our leaders also need more education. And, and the, the Akron Police Department has offered a citizen academy for years, and we've had great participation. Every council person has been invited. Not all have taken up the opportunity. Other ways to learn about what we do as police officers on a daily basis is do citizen ride-alongs. We encourage that. Again, uh, community leaders, politicians, city leaders have all been invited. Some have taken up that opportunity uh, maybe once or twice. Others have not. I think regular ride-alongs for our leaders uh, is a very great way to help with the education. And um, and even media members can be a part of that also, so that they, someone such as yourself that uh, that deals with this on a on a daily basis, it would help you have a background. Uh, so yes, absolutely, educating everyone being educated and trained is a good thing. You know, it's interesting. I, I and it's kind of an old, I'm gonna sound like an old timer here, but you know, we used to always joke that, that you know at the Beacon Journal, you know, the the print product that you know we. We, we, it's like baking bread. You know, the bread, the loaf looks the same every morning, but we use different ingredients every night. And and, and I guess in terms of training and, and your own perspective, every call is different, right? I mean, is there a front porch or not a front porch? Is the front porch light on? Is it not on? Are there 20 people in the house or one person in the house? I mean, it, it, is it kind of hard to train when really no two calls are alike? That's another great point. And, you know, I cringe when I read a story or I see something on television or, or listen to it on the radio when they talk about routine traffic stops, routine uh, domestic disputes. There's nothing routine about them. There really isn't because, like you said, every situation is different. And you can only teach so much in an academy, you know, different size porches, like you said. When you're going to a home and you have to go inside that home, you have no idea what the layout of that home is like officers respond to domestics that involve guns and knives and other weapons, and they have to go inside of these dwellings not knowing what is behind what door or what wall. So very, very good point there about everything being different. No two calls are the same. And going back to when I started the Beacon some 20 years ago, this discussion was on the table then about, you know, review and oversight of, of police arrests and, and tactics and when complaints happen. Do, do you feel that this moment's different? Not necessarily uh, different than what it's been in the past. Uh, I think what makes this difference different is this latest case in Minneapolis. And I can say, and our Fraternal Order of Police National President Patrick Yost has said the same thing, uh, the system worked in that case. He was... Uh, charged it went it went to court he was found guilty and in that instance it worked 
But on the same line there, when you, when you talk about that, you can't use, if, if you're going to accept the outcome of that court case, you have to accept others also. And I'm specifically thinking of Darren Anderson down there in Ferguson. That officer was, I think, unjustly arrested, but he went to court. He was found, uh, he was, uh, found not guilty, exonerated. And he was also, uh, exonerated by the U.S. Justice Department for any civil rights violation. Yet his life was destroyed. And, uh, he is no longer a police officer. And, uh, yet you'll still see those activists nationally and even locally use that case as, uh, a reason for police reform when, uh, in all actuality, he did his duty, that police officer, and he was found to have done it correctly and within the law. So, you know, we can have these conversations, but they must be based on fact. And, um, you know, fact-based conversation is always good. And again, it doesn't mean that uh, police aren't willing to improve. We want to improve as much as we can. But uh, you can't throw false narrative and expect improvement. You've got to you've got to base your improvement on uh, something that uh, is factual. What are your thoughts on? You know, I, I remember talking to uh, a woman in law enforcement. This was outside of Akron, who specifically mentioned Ferguson. She said, you know, police when these things happen, their side of the story doesn't get get to be told because the body cam and other things are held and they're waiting for the investigation to be over. Um, and so, you know, that that information went out against Ferguson. And, you know, unfortunately, some information, once it goes out, it can't be taken back. Recently, this week, as we're recording, Columbus police released body cam really quicker than I've ever seen a department release it um, for their recent incident. What are your thoughts on body cam or or things like that releasing it early and you know does that help officers because it gets the right information out faster is it compromising an investigation when it's out that quick just in general i mean what are your your thoughts on that well it goes back to every uh investigation aren't the same and there's different uh factors i don't think uh i think that the public should see these videos, but they also should be contextualized. And you recall that uh, the department released a contextualized video of the shooting that took place on on Manchester Road, if you recall. And so the problem, let's take that for instance. Okay, those officers were all cleared. They were investing, you know, the prosecutor here in Summit County decided to, you know, drop the ball and, Hand it off to somebody else, which uh, fell upon uh, the state attorney general's office. And those all went to grand jury, and those officers were all cleared. Had you released that video with no context, uh, what happens is they get shown on your TV news, and right before the shot, they freeze the frame, and all you hear are bullet shots that they edit in there. And you don't see the um, the suspect come up on the officers in a shooting stance. You don't see that. So then the, the public doesn't see that. And there was some criticism. Uh, there's some criticism of contextual 
video by the media, yet when I went on the Columbus Dish, Dispatch video, they contextualized the video. So, and that it's helpful. So you know what exactly what's going on. And a, a lot of these things too, a lot of these incidents have to be judged in the split second that the officer made their judgment to take action. When you look at a video, you're Monday morning quarterbacking. And there's also um, situations where, you know, those cameras are on the chest of the officers. That's not necessarily where the officer's looking. So there can be situations where we see as Monday morning quarterbacks what's in front of the officer, but maybe that officer didn't see that. So it gets it gets very um, gets very complicated, but uh, again, when we're judging these things, they got to we we use a um, objectively reasonable standard based on the totality of the circumstances, and the video alone does not give the totality of the circumstance. And this was all spelled out in Graham versus Connor, and I would uh, you know some of the police critics and haters. The first thing I would ask is, have you ever read Graham versus uh, Garner? So I want to ask one one final question here, here Clay, and, and we could talk all day. Um, but I, I'm just curious, why is it adversarial to have a discussion like, like this with Akron City Council and, and outside groups? I mean, it, it does seem like it, it is a little bit of circle of wagons, you know, whenever the, the idea of, of, you know, a police investigator investigating the police or, or, or review, I mean, do you, you see that there's potential for a partnership with city council and even, you know, the, the police, you know, internal investigator who's, who's outside looking at these cases? Why does it have to be adversarial? Well, I'm going to push back on that a little bit because if, I, you know, they had the um, special committees reimagining policing and there were several hours. I watched every second. And if you watch those, there was no adversarial conversations there. We had uh, members from the community, members from city council, and members of the police department, and they all had great conversations. And what's telling about that is you would have a council person or maybe perhaps somebody from the community on one of those uh, special committees, and they would say, well, we need to do this. And then somebody from the police department would say, you know, you're right, and that's why we've been doing it for the last five years. And, again, that gets back to education. Uh, So it doesn't always have to be adversarial. You know, as far as the auditor goes um everybody says his his job is not you know is not explained but that's that's simply not true i was there when they i was on the executive board when they created that position and his job description is to review all completed investigations for fairness and thoroughness that is what he's supposed to do he is not a use of force expert he is not a, he does not have any investigative experience he made the uh, comment, uh, Mr. Uh, Young made the comment that he wanted to be in on all interviews of uh, officers who are involved in, a, uh, in an officer-involved shooting. That's simply not going to happen because those interviews are voluntary. When an officer uses his weapon, he is being investigated criminally, and he has all the rights that everybody else does as a United States citizen. He doesn't have to give a statement. And uh, for Mr. Young to insert himself on those in, uh, on those interviews is improper. They're being investigated and interviewed by a prosecutor, a detective, city prosecutor. It used to be the uh, 
the county prosecutor, but she's bowed out on all these. So um, we have a very good use of force procedure. We have a very good procedure when an officer is involved in a shooting. In fact, many, many jurisdictions and police departments in Ohio and outside of Ohio have called the city of Akron Police Department to get their advice on how they could come up with a similar system for their jurisdictions. I want to thank you, Sean and Clay, for joining us today, and and hopefully we can reconvene to uh, continue this discussion. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. That's all we have today for the Now You Know Akron podcast. We'd like to thank producer B.J. Lisko, who works behind the scenes to make this possible. Be sure to join us again next week. Episodes are released every Wednesday wherever you download your favorite podcast and available on BeaconJournal.com and all of our apps. We urge you to support local journalism by becoming a subscriber. If you've already signed up, thank you. Until next week, now you know Akron. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.